Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Ephesians 5 this morning. I understand that at some point this morning, the smell of the food cooking in the back is going to come wafting through the room, and I know that hunger is tough competition. So I will try to keep it relatively short this morning. I appreciate that you believed me. We have been talking for the last couple of weeks about what it is to be Christian, how you should behave yourselves, knowing that you are the blood-bought, knowing that you are the redeemed, knowing that you are the called, knowing that God has chosen you since before the foundation of the world, knowing that he sent his son to die for you and his son's life and death guaranteed your eternity Based on all that, what should be your reaction? Chapter 4 began with, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Verse 17 says, This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind. Chapter 5 begins, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma 
we are starting this morning in verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. I think you can see a theme developing here. The theme that Paul has been pounding away at here is that it matters how you walk. And he's not just talking about ambulating. He's talking about how you behave yourself. How do you conduct yourself? What should be the mode and manner of your life? And as you've seen, he has said in a positive sense, walk according to the calling with which you have been called. And then he has also said, don't walk like the Gentiles who walk in the futility of their mind. And now be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. The scriptures had a lot to say about wisdom. We have gone through the book of Proverbs. We have looked at some of the wisdom literature, some of the writing of Solomon, who was reputed to be the wisest of men. And so wisdom was a very big facet of Jewish life. But Solomon is very clear to tell us that the very beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. If you don't have the fear of God, no matter what other things you know and what other things you can do in this lifetime, you're not considered genuinely wise. True wisdom, genuine wisdom, the kind of wisdom that the Greeks sought after, even Paul writes about it. How the Greeks seek after wisdom, the Jews look for a sign. So wisdom is a very big part of what Paul considers genuine Christianity to be. That you are to walk as wise people, thinking people, people who understand who they are, how they got here, and what price was paid to buy them, and why they behave themselves the way they behave themselves. So it's more than just rote behavior. It's more than just do this because the Bible says do this. It's do this because you know who you are and where you've been and how you were bought and the price you were bought with and what your future looks like and the peace and contentment that you have in this lifetime. All of the benefits of Christianity that we spent so long talking about, consider all that. And having considered all that, walk like wise people. And then Paul throws the opposite in there, and don't be unwise. He's already told you, don't be like the Gentiles who walk in the darkness and the futility of their minds. Don't be like that. Instead of being futile in your thinking, be wise in your thinking. Because wise thinking will lead to genuine Christian behavior. Now, where are you going to get that kind of wisdom? Well, as I mentioned, Solomon has already said, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. If you genuinely fear and reverence God, you're going to spend time getting to know him. How do you get to know him? Through his word, through the things that he has already said, through the things that are written down for our learning and instruction. And the more time you spend reading the word of God, the more your understanding of who God is and what God's like and what God expects of you. And you'll see that you're not to be like the world, 
that you are to be different because you are bought, because you are not your own. You belong to a master. And that Lord has expectations of you. And so, therefore, be careful how you walk. In other words, whatever you're doing, whatever you're thinking, however you're behaving yourself, however you're conducting yourself, take the time to think about whether this is beneficial or not, whether this is Christian or not. Is this helpful? Is this lifting people up or is this tearing other people down? Is this actually worshipful toward God? Is this God honoring? Or is this behavior grieving the Holy Spirit? Take the care to think about those things. Take the care. Be full of care to worry about your relationship with God and act accordingly. So Paul says, be full of care about how you walk. So don't walk willy-nilly. Don't walk any old way. Don't walk like the world. Don't walk like the Gentiles. Don't walk in the futility of your mind. Instead, take care to see how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. And this is where we finished last week, because the days are evil. And when I said that last week, you all instinctively said, Yes, and amen, and we were darn close to a woo-hoo. I mean, there was, there was general agreement that the days are evil because the world right now seems to be getting progressively darker and darker and more stupid. We all see it. Everybody sees it. If you don't see it, you're not awake and you're not paying attention. But this is God's world. And the world is going exactly the way God said it was going to go for how many years? Have you heard me say, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse? Now it's getting worse. The Bible tells us what the days are going to be like before Christ returns, and they're dark days. But we have to remember that they are gloriously dark days because they're under the hand of a sovereign who is doling out the days according to his own plan. And with each dark day that we get through, we're one day closer to Christ coming back to get us. And so the Bible says, think about all those things. Remember all those things and walk according to those things. Be careful how you think, how you walk, what you consider, and make sure that you make most of your days. Don't Fritter away your days. Spend your days in the activity that is properly Christian and properly God-glorifying because the days are inherently poneros. Now, that is a word that is used sometimes to identify Satan himself. He is called poneros, the evil one. But it's really a word that means that there was something that was originally virtuous, had some amount of virtue to it, and now has been completely degraded. Well, I think we could say that about this world. Paul just did say that about this world. This world was originally designed by God, and originally Eden was a paradise. And then he made the mistake of putting people in it. And people started the downward slide and took the earth along with it because as soon as human beings sinned, thorns started coming up among 
the good fruit and the good vegetation. And the earth itself, says Paul, cries out for the day of its redemption. So there is a day of restoration coming for the planet itself because the world is in this state of degradation from its original state. That's all of what this word poneros has involved in it. The days are evil. doesn't just mean the days are bad. It means the days are degraded. The days are hampered by human sinfulness. And the days are becoming increasingly, I'll use the word again, stupid and evil and dark. So how are we supposed to be? Are we supposed to look at it from a distance and say, wow, that's a shame. The world is getting dark. Paul's argument is we're supposed to shine the light. We're supposed to be light in a dark world. Jesus said that. Be salt and light. Be the light that shines in the world Walk in such a way that you're thinking about the days that you're in so that you're redeeming your days. You're making the most of your days because the days themselves are running down. The days themselves are becoming progressively more evil. Don't be like the world because the days are evil. So then, says verse 17, so then do not be foolish which, by the way, in the book of Proverbs, we saw those two concepts over and over. Wisdom and folly, foolishness. Those are direct opposites in the wisdom literature. You can either be wise, and the beginning of wisdom is paying attention to what God has to say, or you can ignore all that, and the Bible calls you a fool if you're like that. So then don't be foolish. So Paul has just created the contrast. Be wise, don't be foolish. Walk as saved people, don't walk as unsaved people. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay, how are you going to understand what the will of the Lord is? Right there in Tom's iPad. He held up his iPad and he said right here. It's going to be right here in your Bible. That's the only way you're going to know. You're not going to just instinctively figure out what God's like and what he expects of you. You have to actually read it. You actually have to be told it. You have to be taught it. You have to be preached it. You know, we come here Sunday after Sunday and we talk about God and we talk about the things of God and we talk about the holiness of God and then we go back to our lives and we forget and we go back to being like we are. And so you have to be repeatedly taught and reminded and preached to and read to and read it yourself. You have to engage the word of God on a constant basis. That's part of how you redeem the days. That's part of how you make the most of your days is that you spend some portion of your day reminding yourself carefully of who you are and what's been done for you. That's how you walk in a way that is wise and not foolish. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, he's given us several examples so far of what it is to walk righteously, to walk after the Lord. But now he's going to give us one that apparently 
was a pretty big thing in the Ephesian society. He says, do not be drunk with wine. The NASB says, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. Okay, so here's another contrast. The first contrast is don't be drunk with wine. This word oinos is the same word that is used for wine all the way through the New Testament. You'll notice Paul did not say never ever drink any wine. Writing to Timothy, he took the time to say, take some wine for your stomach's sake and you're off in infirmities. Apparently, Timothy had some digestive problems. And Paul said a little bit of wine will help settle your stomach. So the drinking of a little bit of wine is not what Paul is prohibiting. Wine was a very common drink in the Middle East, especially when clean water was difficult to get. But if you overdo the wine, the same as if you overdo anything, I mean, we need water to live. Too much water, you drown. How obvious is that? You can overdo anything. A little bit of sugar is a sweet thing. Too much, diabetes. You overdo anything, it's going to cause you problems. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Now, we have to talk about that word dissipation for a moment. Asatia is the Greek word. Those of you who have listened to me over the years or who know a little bit of Greek will recognize that that word begins with what's called an alpha negative. It's the Greek letter, an alpha, which is an A in our alphabet. And what the alpha negative does is it takes any other Greek word and just turns it backwards. It's like 180 degrees the other way. So it negates the word. The word sotia has the root sozo. Sozo means saved or salvation. So Paul is saying, don't be drunk with wine because that's a not saved way to act. So it's a whole lot more than just dissipation. The English translators tried hard to find a word, a one-for-one -one word that would fit it. Dissipation means the wasting of good material. But unsaved behavior, I think, is much more appropriate for what Paul was saying. He said, don't be drunk with wine because that is the way unsaved people act. So if you are a saved person, if you're a redeemed person, if you're a blood-bought person, then don't get drunk with wine. But on the other hand, the opposite of that is instead of being inebriated, Instead of being out of your correct mind, instead be filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit brings you wisdom. The Holy Spirit brings you sanity, brings you peace of mind. The Holy Spirit brings you right thinking. Being drunk with wine brings you wrong thinking and bad thinking, oftentimes dumb thinking. So the contrast is between acting foolishly, which is acting like an unsaved person, versus being filled with the Holy Spirit and concentrating on the things of God as you walk through this life, redeeming day by day by day. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. 
Now, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about the next two verses, only because these two verses have been yanked out of their natural context and misused so many times through the years that it's worth pulling them apart so that we can understand what Paul was really saying. Because there's also a tremendous irony in these two verses. And it's easy to kind of miss the irony. Paul says, if you're filled with the Spirit, then you are to speak to one another. That's the word lelio. It's the common word for preaching, the common word for communicating to one another. Using your tongue, using your mouth in order to convey things to one another. Speak to one another. The word psalms there is a word that was just transliterated into the English. The original Greek word was psalmos. Basically spelled the same way in English letters. It would be P-S-A-L-M-O-S. Psalmos, and so that just moved into our language. But we have to talk about that word psalmos for just a moment. Because a psalm, if you go back and look at the psalms in the Old Testament, oftentimes you'll see David write to the chief musician, because a psalm was actually a musical piece. There was a recitation of the words, but then there was oftentimes musical accompaniment. In fact, keep your finger there in Ephesians 5. Turn back to the psalms for a moment. The very last psalm, go to Psalm 150. Psalm 150, what a joyous, happy psalm about praising God. Notice the implements that Paul says you should praise him with, because it's all musical instruments. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty expanse, praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. That's what we do. We've got a guitar, we've got a violin. Those would be the stringed instruments. Praise him with loud cymbals. Just be happy we haven't gone with the loud resounding cymbals and the trumpets yet. Thank you, God. <laughs> so praise him. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Then again, praise the Lord. So praise him with a trumpet and a harp and a lyre, a timbrel, and praise him with dancing. This is David who danced before the ark of the Lord. Praise him with stringed instruments and piped instruments and with loud cymbals and with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So David's idea of what a psalm was included instrumentation. Even though the psalms would often be read out almost like an ode, nevertheless, music was an important part of it. Okay, so why am I stressing this? Because when he says, speak to one another in psalms and hymns, that word, by the way, humnas, just moved into the English language as hymns, both of those are referring to musical pieces. Praise God in musical pieces. 
And then the next line says, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. That's the verse that has been yanked out of context and is utilized by congregations and denominations who don't use musical instruments in their worship. I don't know if you've ever been to a church that only believes in vocal singing. If you've come out of the churches of Christ, you know what that is. They, they don't use musical instruments. And I don't mind that they don't use musical instruments. That's their choice. If they choose not to use musical instruments, fair enough. But then they try to use this verse to say that any churches that do use musical instruments aren't doing what this verse says because the verse says, and make melody from your heart. Make melody with your heart, from your heart. By the way, in the original Greek, there's no pronoun there. That's added by the translators, whether it's from your heart, in your heart, with your heart. That's all added in order for us to understand it in the English language. So my point is, if you're part of a congregation that is using this verse in order to say that you should not use musical instruments in the worship of God, Number one, the psalms were full of musical instruments, and psalms are mentioned. But even more ironic, the term here, making melody, is a single Greek word. That single Greek word is salo, which comes from the word sao, which means to rub or pluck. So if you're going to make melody in and with your heart, Take your heart out of your chest and rub it or pluck it until it makes a melody. Or, he's saying, use instruments, the kind of instruments that you rub and pluck and make noise with. So if it is true that a psalm is a musical composition, if it's true that a hymn is a musical composition, and Paul says that you are to rub and pluck things in order to make melody, then this would be the exact wrong verse to use in order to say we don't use musical instruments. Do you understand? I'm not harping against the churches that don't use musical instruments. I'm just saying you chose the wrong verse. That verse proves exactly the opposite of what you think it says. Because these two verses are absolutely chock full of instrumentation in making music. So communicate with each other, speak to one another in these psalms, these recitations that you'll find in the scripture and in hymns. Hymns, by the way, even music across the board, 2,000 years ago was very different than it is today. When we say the word sing, we think of it as singing a melody. 2,000 years ago, the idea of singing was to make a recitation with musical accompaniment. Here Paul is advocating that when the church gets together, rather than being drunk, rather than being foolish, rather than being like the world, we should be filled with the Holy Spirit and all wisdom and then communicate the glory and the praise of God in the way that we play music and sing to one another in other words, it's a joyous thing. It's something that is full of life and praise. And that's the way we're supposed to communicate to each other. 
So I kind of like it these days when folks have sections of the Bible or when they take psalms and they set it to music because then they're doing exactly what Paul described, which is communicating the word of God, but communicating it with instruments and melody. Now let me be specific. That is an inanimate object. It can't sin. It can't do righteousness. It's a piece of wood with some electronics in it. The value of that in a church service is in the heart of the person who plays it. Are they playing for the glory of God? Are they playing for the good and the edification of the congregation? Are they playing to accompany the hymns and the psalms and the songs that we sing to God? That's what gives it its value. I love church musicians because Tom plays his guitar here in church and never once has anybody said, that was inappropriate guitar playing. He tries to play what's appropriate for congregational singing. And I love the heart of somebody who's willing to use their musical talents for that because his guitar is an inanimate object. But you can tell the kind of servitude from his heart that he exhibits when he plays his instrument. Okay, that's all what Paul is talking about here. Use instruments. Don't be drunk with wine. Be in your right mind. Don't be like the unsaved are. Instead, be filled with the Spirit of God. And as you're filled with the Spirit, speak to one another. Communicate with each other in psalms, not just what you make up, not just something from your imagination. Instead, communicate the word of God to one another. Communicate the psalms to each other and the hymns and the spiritual songs, singing and making melody from your heart to the Lord. Heartfelt, emotional music that you're playing for the glory of God and for the good of the whole congregation, that is genuine service to the body of Christ, and that's what Paul is describing. So that's quite the opposite from don't ever use musical instruments. Now, I've been sort of consciously avoiding getting to the next verse. So let me prepare you for what's coming. Because now Paul is going to talk about the necessity of everybody within the church to be subject to each other. These days, the idea of being subject to someone, especially here in America where we are not subject to a king. Biden is not the king. We are not his subjects. And so that idea of being subject is sort of contrary to the American experience. But most of the world knows what it's like to be subject to somebody. The kind of subjection that Paul is going to describe here is a voluntary subjection. It's a subjection that you impose on yourself because you recognize your place within the body of Christ. And because of everything you know about how you were saved and about the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf and about the necessity to walk in a way that is beneficial to other people, knowing all that, Paul says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. 
I've said a couple times this morning that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That does not mean slavish fear. That does not mean, oh, I'm afraid of you. It means reverence. It means recognizing that he is the Lord of life, recognizing that God is the sovereign, recognizing that they're the ones whose decisions ultimately come to pass regardless of what you think. Having that kind of reverence for Christ will lead you to be subject to each other. And in the coming verses, he's going to describe several different human relationships within Greco-Roman society. In fact, he's going to talk about servants and masters. He's going to talk about children and parents. He's going to talk about husbands and wives. And as soon as I read the verse that says, wives, be subject to your husband, well, that's about as politically incorrect as the Bible ever gets. Because in our society today, that's just not an allowable, agreeable kind of thought to say, wives, be subject to your husbands in everything. But what I hope you're going to see is that everybody is subject. The husband also is subject to Christ and has much more responsibility to his wife because he's in Christ than what Paul says to the wife. When Paul talks to masters and servants, he says that the servants are not supposed to be just man pleasers, but then he turns to the masters and puts responsibility on them to treat the servants correctly. When he talks about children and parents, He talks about children being subject to their parents, but then says, and fathers, don't make your sons unhappy. Everybody has responsibility within the body of Christ. And if everybody acts according to their recognition of who God is, who Christ is, and what the body of Christ is like, if everybody then willingly subjects themselves to the situations that God has placed them in, It works. The body works. The marriage works. The family works. The relationship between the boss and the worker works. There's so much of our society that is driving madly off the cliff away from Christianity. But one facet of that is the fact that society today is telling children, don't do what your parents say. That's why you've got Groups like Planned Parenthood going into schools and talking without the parents' permission so that the Planned Parenthood representatives can say, your parents don't know and your parents don't need to know, undermining the parent-child relationship and undermining marriage and what marriage is and how marriage is supposed to work. And then getting rid of the masculine and feminine characteristics so that gender no longer has any part of the society. And if you're a white male, your problem is toxic masculinity. You're not just masculine, you're now toxic. Well, all of that is part and parcel of the society trying to systematically degrade biblical Christianity. So this morning, we're going to read what biblical Christianity says. And if you don't like any part of it, then your problem's not with me and what I'm about to say. Your problem's with God and his word. Make sense? Yes, sir. I'm going to start reading at verse 18 so that you can feel the argumentation that Paul's putting forward. Do not get drunk with wine, 
for that is dissipation. That's how the unsaved act. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hear this from parents all the time. I hear it from people my age all the time, that there's just this general lack of thankfulness. People don't seem to appreciate. Young people don't appreciate what they have. They don't have any real skin in the game. Their parents work hard and then rush out to buy them an iPhone, and they don't appreciate that they have it. General unthankfulness seems to be permeating our world now, permeating our society. The opposite of that, says Paul, is be thankful for absolutely everything. Everything. Because all things are working together for your good if you belong to Christ. So be thankful for all of it. Be thankful for the difficulties in your life. Be thankful for the good things in your life. And if you were ever to put them into columns, you'd have to recognize that the good stuff of your life far outweighs the difficulties of your life. God's been very, very good to us. Amen. So be thankful, says Paul. That is part of what genuine Christian wisdom is, to recognize the price that was paid for you, the eternity that waits for you, and the life that you have here, the provision that he has given you, recognize that all the way through the Bible, the only two things that God ever said he was going to give you is food and raiment. Those are the two things, something to eat, something to wear. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, pray, give us today our daily bread. Because every day God's going to give you some food, and he's going to give you something to cover your body with. And all he has to do is give you Food enough to get you through the day and one set of clothes. That's all he has to provide for you, and he has kept his promise. And instead, what has he given you? You've got closets full of clothes. You've got refrigerators full of food. We've got plenty of food in the back right now. We have an overabundance of food and clothing and cars and air conditioning and houses. We have so much stuff. We have electronics and we have computers. We have, I, I, I could go on all day and just list the things that we have that are just the, There's nobody. There's nobody on planet Earth. There's not one person on planet Earth who couldn't survive without carpet. But we have it. We have so many luxuries. All you have to do to sleep is lay down on the ground. We've got mattresses and beds and sheets and pillowcases and... Some people have too many pillows. It's just an overabundance of stuff that we have. So Paul says, be thankful, people. That, again, is a characteristic of what genuine Christianity is, that we are thankful for the things that we have. That is our attitude. That is our mindset. That is the wisdom of the Spirit, that we be thankful, give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ to God and even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Okay, so be in your right mind, walk in wisdom, 
Don't walk foolishly. Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Be thankful. Be wise. Be subject. Those are all together. Being subject one to the other is not a separate idea. It is part of Paul's description of what genuine Christianity is. Genuine Christianity includes giving thanks, speaking in spiritual songs and psalms and hymns, and being filled with the Spirit of God, and being careful how we walk as wise people and being subject one to the other in the fear of Christ. Okay, let's see if I can get you to talk back to me this morning. What's the most common repeated sin in the Bible? Pride. pride. What's the opposite of pride? Subjecting yourself in humility to each other. Can you see why Paul would say that that is a characteristic of genuine Christianity? Because it is recognizing that he is Lord and that he can place his expectations on you and his body is going to operate the way he wants his body to operate. And one of the ways he expects you to operate is to recognize your subjection to each other. It's the opposite of saying me first. It's all about me. Dig me. Whatever I got to do, if I got to run over you, as long as I get what I want. Instead, it's subjecting yourself to each other in humility, in helpfulness, in coming alongside one another. Paul's first example then is wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. The NASB adds the words be subject just to make the English flow a little better. But he has just said, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Don't lose that phrase. In the fear of Christ. In the recognition of who Christ is and what he's done for you. In the reverence of Christ. That's your motivation for wives being subject to their husbands. It's not because he's such a good guy. It's not because he has achieved such a level of outstandingness that you feel that it's wise to be subject to him. Your reason for being subject to your husband is because you have genuine reverence for Christ. And then if he also has reverence for Christ, he's going to love you the way you deserve and need to be loved. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Paul says within the church, you're to be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. It's your recognition of who Christ is as your Lord, as your master, as your savior, that should improve your behavior to the point where you're willing to respect, honor, dignify your own husband. But then Paul has a lot more to say to the husbands. For the husband is the head of the wife. By the way, the word head there, we know that when Paul describes the church as the body of Christ, he says that Christ is the head. And so we get this figure of like a statue of a person and then Christ becomes the head. But it's much more than just the physical cranial part of the body. It means that he's the one out front. He's the one that's leading. He's the head of the pack. He is the leader. 
So then the husband is also the leader of the wife, the leader of the household. The husband is supposed to be the one who is protecting the house and being a covering for his wife. As Christ also is the leader or the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. Now think about everything Paul is saying here. Paul is drawing an equation between the way husbands ought to act with their wives and the way that Christ actually acted on behalf of the church. And since Christ actually acted on behalf of the church in a completely loving, sacrificial way, Paul's point is then husbands act in a sacrificially loving way toward your wives. I don't do a lot of marriage counseling, but when I see a couple, whenever a couple comes to me and says, we're in trouble, I will talk to them. Invariably, what I hear from them, I'll hear from the men, well, she's just not giving me what I need. And I'll talk to the wife and she'll say, well, he's just not giving me what I need. So both of them are not getting what they want, desire, or need. And so they're keeping score on each other of whether or not they're getting what it is they want, what they need, what they desire. And they're expecting the other person to just cough that up. The Christian description of marriage is wives, give your husband the proper respect. And every man in the room knows what that feels like. You want to make your man put his chest out and walk around going, that's right, I'm a man. Just give him proper respect and watch. Watch the way he starts to love you in return. He will give you the love that you need if you give him the respect that he needs. And so if you both sacrificially are giving to each other, what you'll discover is in giving to each other, you both get what it is you needed. Paul's about to say that. That men love your wives because you're to love your wife the way you love your own body. And no man yet ever hated his own body. He takes care of his body. He feeds his body. He cleans his body. He takes care of himself. Well, then your wife, since the two of you are one flesh, your wife is your body. Therefore, love your wife and you'll be surprised what you get back from her in terms of respect and being subject to you. So again, these are not directives do it because I'm being harsh and do it because I'm mean and do it because Christianity is hard-hearted and mean. It's do it because that's what's good for you. That's what's beneficial to you. This is the way marriage works. And when marriages don't work, it's because some part of this equation got broken. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. But husbands, sacrificially love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a tough standard. 
The standard is love your wife like Christ loved the church. And how did he demonstrate that sacrificial love? He laid down his life for her. That becomes your standard, men. Now go out and love your wife in a sacrificial way where you're willing to lay down your life for her, for her good, for her benefit, for her protection. And just watch if she doesn't then trust you and respect you and be subject to you. And you'll get back exactly what it is you both need. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he could sanctify her. Now Paul sort of can't help himself, and he just starts waxing theological. He has mentioned Christ and the church and the sacrifice of Christ, so now he wants to make sure that he's got his theological ducks in a row here. He died, he gave himself up for the church so that he might sanctify her, cleanse her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, the church, should be holy and blameless. So Paul's theology of the church-Christ relationship is that Christ did absolutely everything necessary for the church to satisfy himself, to get a body for himself, a wife for himself, a bride for himself, a church for himself that has been completely cleansed with the washing of water that has no spot, that has no wrinkle, that has no blemish, that is holy and blameless. And he's the one who did all that sacrificially so that he could present to himself the very thing that he desired for himself. And then says, husbands, do that. Husbands, you then should sacrifice yourselves for your wives. So husbands, says verse 28, ought also to love, sacrificially love their own wives as their own body. Because he who loves his own wife loves himself. In other words, it's good for you to love your wife. If you love your wife sacrificially, you're the one that benefits from that because you're going to get the respect. You're going to get the voluntary subjection in response. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. A couple words I want to point out there. You'll notice that it says, so husbands ought to love their wives. We're sinners. We know this is the standard. There's not a man in the room who doesn't read this standard and think, yes, that's right. That's the way I'm going to be until the next time she acts up. And then I'm not going to be that way anymore. That's why Paul talks about it. And too many of you men snickered at that. But that's why Paul says that it's sacrificial. It's something that you've got to do as a sacrifice, whether you're getting the right response or not. You do it for her. Because you're the head of the family, because you're the head of the marriage, the same way that Christ is the head of the church. So we get that. This is the ideal. This is the way that Christians are supposed to behave. This is the way that Christian marriages are supposed to be enacted. Is this the way all Christian marriages work? Sadly, no. 
Why? Because we're sinners. Yet again, more proof of our depravity and our fallenness that we can read that Paul says this is what a good Christian marriage looks like. But then our humanness gets in the way and our sinful behavior gets in the way and instead of loving each other the way we're supposed to, we end up rebelling against each other. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but he feeds it, he nourishes it, he takes care of it, he cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. There's that oneness that Paul keeps talking about between Christ and the church. That is why the ideal marriage scenario is such a perfect example of Christ and his church. The whole idea of man and woman becoming one flesh Theologically, for Paul, is a demonstration of the oneness between Christ and his church. The reason that he spells out this marriage ideal is because the true, genuine marriage ideal is found in the church, is found in the fact that Christ has indeed sacrificed himself for his church so that he can protect her, so that he can cover her, so that he can present her to himself the kind of bride that he expects her to be. So ultimately, even though this is about Christian behavior, it's so much deeper than that. It's about Christ and the church, our oneness with Christ, our security in Christ, the covering that Christ puts over us. And you will also notice that Paul is very specific to say that when Christ died, when he sacrificed, he gave himself for the church. That's particular redemption. He died for his bride. He died for his church so that he could present her to himself a spotless, unblemished bride. Just as Christ also does for the church, verse 30 says, because we are members. Remember a moment ago, he said, no man hates his own body. He said, we are Christ's body. Therefore, he does not dislike us. Therefore, he does take care of us. Therefore, he does provide for us because we are his body. And no man yet has ever hated his own body because we are members of his body. And then Paul quotes from the book of Genesis, reaching all the way back to Genesis 2, and quotes, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Paul explains that this is really theology he's talking about. He's not just giving you the marriage rules within Christianity. Ultimately, he's talking about our oneness with Christ And all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the second chapter of Genesis, we read about a man and a woman becoming one flesh. And Paul says in verse 32, because this is a great mystery. Now he's going to explain the mystery. I am speaking with reference to Christ and his church. That's why the marriage ideal exists. Here's the great part. If you're feeling a little down right now because you didn't live up to the marriage ideal, why does the marriage ideal exist? Because Paul's really talking about Christ and his church. And where Christ and his church are involved, 
the ideal marriage exists and therefore we're going to be fully redeemed fully saved we have this great eternity to look forward to because Christ himself betrothed us and then went off to build a place for us in his father's house and is then coming back to get us and that's why so much of the New Testament and the Gospels describe the return of Christ in all this marriage language which we have looked at in months past the marriage between Christ and his church is in fact the ideal marriage this mystery is great I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church nevertheless says Paul let each individual among you love his own wife even as himself and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband the King James says that she reverence her husband so Paul started talking about the ideal marriage right on the back of talking about Christian behavior do we always live up to the ideals of Christian behavior do we always redeem every day do we take every thought captive do we walk through our lives constantly in the mindset of Jesus is my Lord and my behavior needs to reflect that do we do that the truth is no we don't because we're sinners but has someone done it sure Christ did it and Christ betrothed us to himself and so Paul then describes what the ideal marriage looks like and even if we humans fail to keep the standards of the ideal marriage the ideal husband is going to make for himself an ideal bride and that's really really good news Paul can't help himself even when talking about behavior within Christian marriage he still has to ultimately make it Christocentric he still has to put Christ in the middle of it now look on a very practical level if you don't have Christ in the center of your marriage your marriage isn't going to work if you don't have Christ in the middle of your marriage if you're not both recognizing the Lordship of Christ in your life if you don't both recognize that he's your Savior he's your Lord he's the master he's the head of the church he's the one that you're both following if you're not both walking that same path following him I got bad news for you it's not going to work and we have so much evidence of that but two people walking the same path following Christ as Lord that marriage is going to work but ideally it's not about marriage it's about Christ and his church ideally it's about the fact that Christ has done everything necessary to make sure that you come live in the home he's building for you he did that for you sacrificially now the same way that he was forgiving to you so therefore Paul says now be forgiving the same way that Christ has been long-suffering and patient with you we're told then be long-suffering and patient with each other the same way that Christ was sacrificial to you we're told well then be sacrificial to each other that also works in your marriage since you know the relationship of Christ and his wife in the ultimate marriage between Christ and the church use that as your inspiration then to reverence your husband and to sacrificially love your wife 
It's always a reflection. It's always a response. It's always coming from the knowledge of who Christ is and what he's done. It never starts with you. It always starts with Christ and then conforms you to Christ-like behavior. Got it? Got it. So then, walk like it. In every aspect of your life, walk like it out in public, walk like it in the church, walk like it behind closed doors, walk with it with the person who knows you best, that's your husband or your wife, walk like the things you profess to believe. Yeah? Yes. Now you're not going to be able to do that unless Christ gives you the ability and the power to do it. And that's why we're going to sing... I need thee every hour. for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. 
We invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.